part and my heart are bent to desire things and lust after things that fundamentally are not ours to have. And what I would suggest to you is this. It's that every misuse of sex and sexuality, when we, when we seek sexual gratification outside of the context in which God has designed it to be in, when we seek that, any misuse of that expresses that we either do not know God as we ought to know Him, or that we do not know Him at all. One of the two. That's what, that's what it expresses. And that's why Jesus says here that it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. He's not saying here that your sexual morality is the thing that punches your ticket into heaven. It's, he's not saying that, that being moral in this particular aspect of your life or any other aspect of your life is the thing that earns you God's favor. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that sexual immorality is a symptom of a much larger problem. And the problem is unbelief. The problem is that Christ and His Gospel and the depth of His love for His people there, and your dependence upon Him, they're either completely unknown to you, or they're unknown to you to the degree that they ought to be. And it's likely a symptom of the fact that you are unknown to Him. See, one of the aspects of Eve's sin was not so much that the, the fruit was delightful to her in the Garden of Eden, that the, that the fruit was appealing, it, it looked good, it was attractive. That, it wasn't that, that she had an appreciation for it, it was that she chose to take something that was not hers to take. She desired something that did not belong to her, and it was a symptom of the fact that she did not know God. And she worshipped her lustful appetites more than she worshipped God Himself. And all forms of sexual immorality or immorality of any stripe have that characteristic to us. It's the characteristic of desiring something that doesn't belong to you, that doesn't belong to us, and, and, and that desires to live outside of the way that God has designed us to live. So in light of that, what I want to do today is to give you a few very practical and, and pervasive examples that I think are going on in the world and in the church that we have to grapple with in light of this particular commandment. So I have three of those that I want to bring to bear upon your life. And the first issue has to do with a heart that desires sexual fulfillment with someone of the same sex. This is something you just wouldn't have talked about in the church 30, 40, 50 years ago. But it's so pervasive in our culture now that it would be irresponsible to deal with this text and not deal with it because there is hardly a more heated, passionate issue going on in the world than the issue of sexuality in general and the issue of homosexuality in particular. And just to give you an example of what this is like, in, in 2008, our family, we were living in San Diego. And on the ballot that year was a proposition called Proposition 8, which was a proposition that would define marriage in the state of California as being between one man and one woman. So in the months leading up to that proposition, to that election, uh, there, were, there would be street corners in San Diego with 30 or 40 or 50 people standing on one intersection with signs and posters all in favor of Proposition 8 and what it stood for. 
directly across the street, there would be another group of 30 or 40 or 50 people with signs against Proposition 8 and what that stood for. And that was the case in major intersections from San Diego to the Oregon border in every town and every city for three months leading up to that election. You just had an opinion on that issue. It was... A, it, was, it was a pervasive issue in that state, and it is a pervasive issue here as well, what that's all about. But, but regardless of what happens in the polls, my friends, what, what, regardless of what our laws ha- come to be and what happens in that regard, the fact of the matter is, is that any sexual relationship outside of the one-man, one-woman marriage covenant is a distortion of God's design. It's not the way in which we are designed to live. And there are all sorts of passages all over Scripture condemning that, condemning homosexuality. Uh, We don't have time to get into all of them, but you're probably aware of the whole Sodom and Gomorrah situation in Genesis chapter 19. You see the, the law that's given to Israel as a civil society and as the church in Leviticus 17 and, and, and Leviticus chapter 20. And then you get into the New Testament and you see that things don't change much. That homosexuality is a sign of actual unbelief. That imbibing that as your lifestyle and that is your pattern and your way of living it is, is a sign of unbelief. You know, when you look at the creation story in Genesis chapter 2, you see that Eve was created out of Adam's side. And two distinct individuals are created, both equally in the image of the true line God, but they're sexually different from one another. And so what marriage is, is is a reuniting into one flesh, what was established there, the maleness into femaleness, it's a reuniting into one sexually integrated whole, taking the two halves, making them one flesh in the union and the bond of marriage. And you see echoes of this as well in Ephesians chapter 5, because what Jesus is, or what Paul is saying there is that there is an intimacy and a bond and a union that takes place in the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And what it does is it signifies the intimacy and the bond and the union that Christ, the groom, has established with the church, his bride. And so the call there is is that the husband, however imperfectly, and it is always wildly imperfect, but the husband represents Christ to his wife. It's a position of servant leadership where he loves her and lays down his life for her just as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for the church. And what does the wife do in response? The wife responds to her husband as we, as the church, respond to Christ. We live in honor of him. We live in respect towards him. And that's the way that the wife is is called to live with regard to her husband. It's a man and a woman in marriage. Coming together in sexual intimacy that represents Christ, the groom, marrying his church, the bride, and bringing her into an unbreakable union with him. It's it's a beautiful description of what marriage ought to be. And so there's something fundamental about maleness and femaleness, masculinity and femininity coming together in marriage. But see, in homosexuality, you obviously don't have that. You don't have that at all. In order to justify homosexuality, 
you have to say that maleness and femaleness are simply social constructs. They're, they're, they're things that people made up as they went along over the course of the year and uh, years, and now we're enlightened enough to, to get rid of all of those distinctions that exist between male and female. And, and, and really, at the end of the day, the, the roles between male and female are just totally interchangeable. The only difference is simply the plumbing, and that's about it. That's what you get to justify homosexuality. But the problem is, is that if male and female roles in marriage are interchangeable, then what difference does it make for a woman to marry a woman and a man to marry a man? What difference does it make? The roles become interchangeable, and then it symbolically suggests that the role between God and man is interchangeable as well, which is a heresy of the highest order. It's making yourself God over God himself. And that's why giving in to homosexual desires is a symptom of the fact that a person either does not know God as he ought to or does not know him at all. Friends, at best, homosexual desire is self-delusional because you're perceiving in someone who is sexually identical to you that they are actually sexually different. That's at best. At worst, it's narcissistic and totally self-absorbed because you're desiring more of the sexual traits that you actually have in yourself. But in any case, homosexual sex and marriage is completely, completely beyond the pale of God's design for us. And at the end of the day, capitulating to that desire for sexual intimacy with someone of the same sex is an expression of this. It's an expression that we do not know God as we ought or that we do not know Him at all. You know, this, this, is a, this is a tough issue and it's something that we can't really address in just a few minutes. But there's a possibility that either you or someone that you love, someone that you really care about, is experiencing some kind of strong attraction to someone of the same gender. And, and if, if that describes you, if it describes that person, it is very, very highly unlikely that they woke up one day and decided... Hmm, gay or straight? Gay or straight? I think I'll go to the gay side because that's a better life. Batting from the other side of the plate, that just seems to be a a better way to live. That's probably not the way that it happened. And that's something that we should not be surprised about. Because in a world that is so broken, that is so depraved, and our hearts are so deceitful, it should not be surprising that we are naturally inclined towards all kinds of different lusts. In fact, all of us are inclined to some kind of lust towards something naturally that we gravitate towards. But just because that's the case, we can't resist calling sin, sin. We can't resist calling it what it actually is. There, there are a hundred things that come naturally to me that I shouldn't do because it's either self-destructive or destructive to my relationships or dishonoring towards God. So just because you and I have a natural appetite towards something doesn't mean that we ought to feed it. And homosexuality is one of those things. It's a gross perversion of God's design for sex and marriage. And it really speaks to the brokenness and the depravity that goes on in the hearts of so many people. But I need to say this as well, and this is really important that you need to key in on. When Jesus said... Love your neighbor as yourself. He made no exceptions. He made no exceptions. Jesus did not say, love your neighbor as yourself except for gay people. 
That's not what he said. Our, our neighbors, no matter what they're like, are people created in the image of a beautiful, true-line God. And to push them away and to dehumanize them because they're breaking the seventh commandment is one of the ways we find ourselves breaking the sixth commandment, which is do not murder. We ought to befriend people who are either battling this issue or who are in full-fledged capitulation to this. Listen, if, if Jesus can eat with prostitutes, then you and I can befriend people who are in some kind of homosexual relationship. That's something that we can do. And, and what a beautiful reflection of what God is actually like that would be. What a beautiful reflection of what God is like. Because when, when the media wants to shine light on some so-called church from Kansas who likes to go out and picket military funerals because America supposedly allows for homosexuality. And then when we hear of, on the one hand, denominations caving in to the homosexual agenda, and on the other hand, churches completely alienating homosexuals because of their harsh rhetoric and their callous hearts, what a difference it would make if we as a church would call it what it actually is, which is sin, active rebellion against God while at the same time loving these people, showing them greater love than they show to us, and pointing them to the one who redeems every aspect of our lives. That would be a beautiful thing to see in the church. It's something highly unusual as well. Well, I'll say a little more about homosexuality in a minute, but it doesn't get any lighter as you go through this stuff because there's another expression of lust that we need to address that's hitting us front and center. And that is the issue of pornography in the church and in the world today. This is something that's always been around. It's nothing new. It's been around since the beginning of time. But what is relatively new is the completely free and immediate and anonymous access to it. It is an issue for most men and boys, regardless of what their age is, and a surprisingly significant view uh, issue for women. And, it, and it's moved from something in our culture to be something embarrassed about that you keep behind closed doors to something that in many circles has just become socially acceptable. You know, a few months ago, back in January, I think it was, a number of us men, we went up to First Presbyterian Church in Jackson to the Mid-South Men's Rally. And this is a, a men's conference that they have once a year. It's a great time. We had a blast up there. And the speaker was Russell Moore. Russell Moore, some of you know him. He's from Biloxi. And he is currently an academic dean at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I remember what he was saying. Just, it just kind of struck me because I, I can identify with this. He, has, he counsels a lot of couples, lots of married couples, who come to him with, generally speaking, the same story. They're detached from one another. They're roommates at best. The sexual relationship is either completely or almost completely non-existent. And they just have very little tender compassion and connection with one another. And so he hears the story. It goes on and on. And after a certain period of time, he looks directly at the husband and stares into his eyes and asks, so how long has the porn been going on? And, and they're just shocked. Like, 
They think that he's an Old Testament prophet or a New Age psychic. One of the two. I mean, they just can't. How, how could he have possibly known this? But you don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to be a psychic. You don't have to have a PhD in anything to know that this is just such a pervasive issue. It's something that's just so acute in marriages and so acute in our lives. And it is far, far from a harmless thing. It's far from a cheap thrill. What it is is a a hopeless attempt to indulge a fantasy and enjoy intimacy and sexual fulfillment completely detached from relationship. It's something you do in isolation. And it isolates you from that meaningful relationship. It absolutely, my friends, absolutely cripples your ability to have a meaningful sexual and relational connection with your wife. It will affect your relationship in areas that seemingly have nothing at all to do with sex. And all it will do is leave you cold and hard and detached and unable to connect with each other. Those high school guys, younger men, men in general, single men, listen to me. If, If you want to make sure that you will have a screwed up marriage someday and that you will not be able to relate well to women, then get hooked on this. That, that's, that's how you can do it. Get hooked on this stuff. If you are married and you want to mess up your marriage, then the best advice I can give you is to get hooked on this stuff. This is what Russ Moore says about pornography. He says, One picture stored in the memory will never be enough to continue arousing a man. God designed the man and the woman to be satisfied not with a single sex act, but with an ongoing appetite for each other, for the unitive and procreative union of flesh to flesh and soul to soul. One seeking this mystery outside of the covenantal union will never find what he is looking for. He will never find an image naked enough to satisfy him. My friends, a heart that's inclined towards this is the same kind of heart that's inclined towards homosexuality. It's it's a heart that very well may be indicative of the fact that you either do not know God as you ought to know Him or you don't know Him at all. Here's the third and final symptom of a heart that idolizes lust. And it's the issue of immodesty. See, if, if lust is a particular problem for men and boys, then being lusted after is a particular problem for women and girls. For, for a, a woman or a girl to dress in a very provocative way and say that she does not want to be lusted after is, is, is someone who's speaking out of two sides of her mouth. My friends, this week I was, I was having a gourmet lunch at Chick-fil-A. And, and I was enjoying my chicken sandwich and my waffle fries at the Edgewater Mall. And I look up and staring at me from this huge, ginormous poster is, is Bridget Bombshell wearing virtually nothing. And, and, she's, and she's just staring at me from Victoria's not so big of a secret. Just right there. And, and to a man, what she's saying is that he must have her 
in order to be fulfilled. And to a woman, she's saying that she must be her in order to be fulfilled. Y'all, it's idolatry. It never fulfills. It never provides what it promises. No idols ever provide what they promise. And secular research, you don't even have to look to some prudish Christian organization somewhere to discover this. Secular research, with one resounding voice, tells us that the over-sexualization of young girls and teens is directly linked to eating disorders, even though it promises greater fulfillment and satisfaction with her body. It's linked to low self-esteem, even though it promises personal empowerment. And it's linked to depression, even though it promises greater satisfaction and happiness. Plus, it sends a message that this girl or this woman is valuable for not a whole lot more than her body. That may not be your intent, ladies. That may not be what you're trying to do. But that's what you're communicating when what you wear gives greater attention to your assets than it does to your face, to who you are as a person. Now, I I should say this as well. I don't think that Scripture is calling people in general or women to wear a a, a moo-moo and dress like they're from that scary cult in in Utah with the woman with the crazy-looking hair and the frumpy dresses. That's not what Scripture's calling you to do. There's ways to dress attractive and, and flattering, but when your clothing, what you wear, and how you carry yourself is drawing significant attention away from your face and it's drawing attention to other sexual aspects of your body, you're sending a message that you don't want to be treated as a person with intelligence and dignity. You're sending the message that you want to be treated like a sexual object. And parents especially fathers, I think this is a place where you need to step in. Because dads, you know how the male brain works. You know what a teenage boy is thinking a lot better than your teenage daughter does. And because that's the case, your daughter needs you to represent Christ towards her. She needs you to show forth His beauty and His grace and what He's all about and to show her that she is a valuable young lady not because of what some scuzzy guy thinks about her but because of what God says that she is. That's something that needs to be communicated to her and she doesn't have to dress like a tramp in order to feel like she's worth something. And and moms, what you buy for your daughters, what, what you allow her to buy, and, and how you even dress yourself, that's what's going to speak volumes to your girl. You do not have to capitulate to the spirit of the age just because that's what's on the sales rack. You are not a glorified ATM machine. Your daughter needs a mom. She doesn't need a 45-year-old BFF. She needs a mom. And what Jesus wants us to see, my friends, What Jesus wants us to see is that the seventh commandment is ultimately an issue of the heart. All of the commandments, all of these things are issues of the heart. Whether you're you're married and you're sexually involved with someone that you're not married to, or you're single and you're in some kind of sexual relationship with someone, or, or you're 
giving in to, to homosexual desires or pornographic desires or you're leaving little to the imagination, the bottom line is that all of those things that I've just mentioned are just symptoms. That they're all symptoms. Homosexuality is not the problem. Adulterous affairs, premarital sex, pornography, immodesty, and all that stuff, that is not the problem. The problem is a heart that either does not know God as we ought to know Him or doesn't know Him at all. And my friends, whether or not you are a follower of Christ this morning, the answer to this problem for you is the same. And the answer is to repent of that and believe in the gospel. Repent in that and and, and believe in who Jesus is and what he does for his people in the gospel. And and superficially, it means what Jesus says here, to, to, to pluck it out and to throw it off, to make an intentional decision to cut off anything in your life that's causing you to cave into this stuff. Maybe it means cutting off a relationship, get, getting a filter on your computer, or completely removing that computer from your house. Shockingly enough, people lived for thousands of years without one in their house. You, you will figure out a way to cope if that's what you need to do. But cut it off lest you screw up your life and your marriage and your family. Parents, it, it is hopelessly naive to allow your teenage son to have a computer in his room without a filter on it and to think that he's just using it for homework and a little Facebook on the side. I almost promise you that that's not happening. All of that is important. All of that cutting out of that stuff is important. But ultimately, my friends, at the end of the day, unless our hearts change, there's just going to be no desire for that. There's going to be no strength to change on the outside because there's a problem going on on the inside. The the Christians who came before us, the ones who most prophetically spoke God's word, always taught that the way in which we get rid of of one idol in our hearts is, is to replace it with something more beautiful and more attractive. It needs to be replaced with something more beautiful and attractive. But the only way in which that happens is through real, genuine repentance that is grounded in what Jesus has accomplished for us and applied to us in the Gospel. When you you look to Mount Sinai, when you look to to the place where the Ten Commandments are given, when you look to the Ten Commandments, all you discover there is that your sin is exposed. It's put on full display, it's laid on the table. But when you look to Mount Calvary, the, the mountain upon which Jesus was crucified for our sin, you discover that the grace is there and it's available for you to deal with your sin. And, and when you start to marinate in that, it, it changes your behavior. And you, and you don't repent because you fear the consequences or or you're worried about getting caught, or you fear being rejected. You you repent because you've begun to see that your rebellion, in this or any other way, is is such an affront to the one who loved you and gave himself for you. That's what all of our love songs are about. Love songs are always talking about giving over your life 
because you've been so deeply loved by someone. Brian Adams, the great theologian that he is, said, everything I do, I do it for you. Well, why? Because he had been so deeply loved by this unnamed woman. And because that was the case, he was willing to give over, at least in the song, to give over his lusts, his own selfish interests, for the sake of that person who so deeply loved him. And Christian, that's your story. You have been loved with a love that absolutely, positively will not let you go. It, it, is, a, it is a costly love, a sacrificial love, a love of a God who promises that He will never leave you or forsake you, a, pro, a God who promises that He doesn't use your sin as leverage over you, but that He brought it upon Himself and He paid the debt that you owe. Paul says in Titus chapter 2 that it's the grace of God that causes us to say no to worldly passions and ungodliness. In Romans chapter 2, he says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We, We don't obey to get accepted. We're accepted. And because of that, we obey. You're... You're loved and that love was so costly. And so because that's the case, Christian, how can you and I continue to live in the very thing that Jesus was humiliated and abandoned and beaten and cursed and murdered for so that we could be delivered from? How can we continue to live in that? This is what the Gospel says. The Gospel says, Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A a wretch like me. Someone with all kinds of lusts, all kinds of filth in my life. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. When you believe that, not just give intellectual assent to it, but when you believe that, that's the only thing that's going to lead you to put this stuff to death and to live in light of that amazing grace. May God grant that it would be so here at this church and in our lives. Let's pray. Father, these commandments expose junk in our lives. They expose filth. And it's there in all of our lives to one degree or another. And all we can do is cry out Jesus and pound our chest and say, have mercy on me a sinner. We thank You that when we cry out like that, we know that that prayer does not go unanswered or unheard. It's something that you hear and you answer 100% of the time. And so we pray that You would make us people who seek Your mercy and seek the power of Your Holy Spirit to be renewed and to put off the old man and to put on the new man. God, renew us and change us so that we would reflect Your beauty. We ask this all in the name of Him who came such a distance for us, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.